Thank you, Jody, for that announcement. Did you guys get all that? That was spectacular. Uh, I, will, I will point out a couple of things. Uh, number one is since my debacle in dismissing the kids uh, two, two weeks ago, the last two people are two for two. Uh, and so I will never dismiss kids ever again. Uh, secondly, as Jody was sharing that announcement, I thought about a comment that was made by a pastor years ago. I was visiting a church in South Florida at the time, and the pastor stood up, and I don't remember exactly the context of the conversation, uh, but he, he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, your seat is someone's sacrifice. Your seat is someone's sacrifice. And he was just talking about serving and, and just the fact that, that oftentimes this doesn't just happen, like it happens through the sacrifice of God's people. And I'll never forget that. As I think about how God has demonstrated his kindness to our church family uh, over many years now, I am exceedingly grateful uh, for the many hands of godly men and women and students who has, have served uh, in this place. And it is neat to think, uh, really since 2020, when we came back as a church, to see how God has and how he continues to grow us uh, as a people, not just simply adding uh, new faces, although that is part of it, but, but changing us from the inside out. Uh, he really is doing a good work. And so we're excited to see uh, more and more kids come to Christ Point. Someone once said that uh, kids are the church of the future. Uh, I believe that that is true, but I also believe that kids are the church of today. Uh, and God has uniquely gifted and equipped them to do some pretty amazing things. And, uh, and we get to be a part of that. So that'll, that'll be neat um, to see uh, those classes grow. Well, I have three goals uh, this morning, number one, I want to try to explain in roughly 10 to 12 minutes how the Bible came together. Uh, I want to make an argument that the passage that Billy read today um, likely doesn't necessarily belong in John's gospel. And I want to explain to you why you should not form a search committee and look for my replacement. Uh, and then third, I want us just to think together about what does this passage teach about God? What does it teach about us as individuals? And what does it teach about us as, as a community, right? So those, those three things. So uh, first, let's talk about how uh, the Bible came together. Depending on your version of the Bible that you have in front of you, uh, you will notice that this morning's passage is either set off in brackets uh, or maybe it's a footnote uh, in John chapter 7 and John uh, chapter 8. Um, in case you're wondering, those brackets were not in the original text, uh, but those brackets are there because the earliest manuscripts do not have that passage, John chapter 7, verses 53 through John 8, verse 11. Now, you may hear that and you start to get a little nervous. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I thought the Bible could be trusted. I thought that it was true. I thought it was without error. Why is something that should not be in there, in there? And if that's the case, can we trust the Word of God? Are these God's words to us? Are they inerrant and inspired? So maybe you're thinking that, or maybe you're just thinking, James, this is kind of a lazy summer day. And I just want to take a nap this afternoon. Maybe you're thinking, I don't want to go back to work on Monday. Maybe you're thinking, my marriage is really difficult right now. Maybe, 
you're wrestling through issues with your kids, students, maybe, maybe you're wrestling through issues with your parents. And so the thought of coming to church and talking about how the Bible came together or thinking together about text criticism is not high on your priority list. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, maybe we should have left with the kids. I get it. I get it. I want, I want to hopefully convince you uh, that it was a good uh, idea to stay. It was a good idea to stay. And so let's kind of think together about how this book came together. Um, back in the day, before Jesus was born, uh, most people, most people uh, did not read or write. There were obviously no computers or printers. Nobody was sending email or text messages. Most people learned by listening. And this was true of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, they would hear his words spoken. Other people would hear his words. And they would memorize the words. And they would repeat the words. Now, maybe that concerns you a little bit, this idea of what's called oral tradition. Maybe you hear that and you go, what do you mean, like people just memorize stuff? Well, we memorize stuff today. You, you memorize the lyrics to just about any Taylor Swift song, right? People like her. They, they know her where they've sung the song. They could repeat them like that. Maybe you memorize the lines from your favorite movie, whatever that movie might be. Like you, you can quote it. You've heard it so many times. Well, followers of a rabbi, followers of Jesus would hear stories taught and they would, they would memorize the words of their rabbi and they would uh, repeat them. As the disciples uh, began to get older and as other witnesses over the years began to die, four accounts of Jesus' life were written down. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the New Testament, as we know it, was originally written in Greek. Uh, the first Greek New Testament was printed uh, in, uh, in 1516 by Erasmus. So 1516, that was the first like, copy of uh, the Greek New Testament. That means for roughly 1,500 years, uh, manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down to us through handwritten copies. So people would have, you know, handwritten copy of a book or of a story, and people would write it down. And these people who did this were copyists, and they were meticulous in their work. Um, sometimes we hear that, and we get a little nervous. We think, James, what, like, if, if people are just looking at something, and they're copying it down, like it must be full of errors uh, and mistakes. But uh, surprisingly or miraculously, um, it, it really is not. There is an abundance of New Testament manuscripts. If you were to compare the manuscripts from Scripture to the manuscripts of other well-known uh, books, it would literally blow you away. For instance, there are 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars that was composed between 58 and 50 B.C., uh, and all of these date from the 10th century or later. Uh, there are 20 manuscripts of the Roman history written roughly during the time when Jesus was alive. Homer's Iliad uh, was, other than Scripture, the most well-known uh, book in terms of the quantity of manuscripts or the portions 
of manuscripts, and there are roughly 1,800, right? So you go, okay, 1,800, that that seems like a lot. How many manuscripts or portions of manuscripts uh, do we have of Scripture? Well, the New Testament uh, was written in the first century A.D., and there are roughly 25,000 early manuscripts in existence, almost 6,000 of which were written uh, as Greek, as a Greek text, and others were translated uh, from the Greek. So think about that, like 25,000 manuscripts. Um, That's a lot. Um, That is a gift, and it is a blessing to the church. Uh, It also potentially could create some problems that maybe other documents don't have. If you just have a couple manuscripts of a particular document, the chance of uh, coming across any inconsistencies or variance in a particular text uh, would be a little more uncommon if you have three or five or even ten of a text. If you have 25,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts, you start to compare them, and occasionally you might come across something and go, wait a second. Why, why does this maybe use this word or this phrase in this manuscript over here uh, use something different? Um, if that makes you nervous, I just want to let you know that of all of Scripture, there are roughly 1%, some people will say a little more, some people say a little less, uh, of variables within the text. So 99% of what you read, people are going, well, yeah, like this... I mean, we've compared it. We've looked. This makes sense. This matches. It's a match. Of that 1%, there are no major uh, doctrines that are affected in any way. And what I mean by that is if there is a variant in a particular text, uh, it's not a variant that would cause us to go, well, maybe Jesus wasn't God's son. Um, maybe, Maybe the Trinity isn't true or real. Like maybe one has to work to earn their salvation, and it's not a gift by God uh, through grace by faith. Uh, th- there, there are no variants that would cause us as the people of God to go, wait a second, this whole thing, man, I don't know if I can trust it. Right, so you tracking so far? This is fun, isn't it? This is like 10 minutes of seminary. This is, this is great. I long for this. So let's think together. What about our text this morning? Maybe when you look at your copy of Scripture, you have the, like the little brackets that says, in the earliest manuscripts, this was not included. So what do we do? Well, we go to really smart Bible nerds. We go to theologians, as they're called. And we go, okay, these experts in the New Testament, well, what do they say about the text? So here's uh, words from Don Carson. He's one of the, the top, and this is debatable, right? But one of the top New Testament scholars out there. And this is what he says about uh, John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8 uh, through verse 11. He says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right uh, to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it uh, to a footnote. Dr. Carson, that's what he says. Bruce Metzger, who I should point out has a spectacular last name, uh, was one of the, he really does, he spells it with a Z, but I like to tell people we're related. 
uh, one of the world's great authorities on the text of the New Testament uh, until his death roughly 20 years ago. He wrote this about this passage. Uh, the evidence of the non-Johannine uh, origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. So he's going, hey, I, I, I've looked at the story. I've studied the story. Um, the evidence kind of shows that this likely should not uh, be a part of John's gospel. Another scholar, Leon Morris, writes, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. So these are some like go-to New Testament theologians and scholars. These are, these are not like three buddies that are going to the local pub and throwing a few back and going, man, you can't trust Scripture. These are guys that God has gifted uniquely and have spent their lives studying uh, the Word. And this is just the conclusion that they came to. So, again, what about our text this morning? What does it mean? Should it be included in John's Gospel? Should it not be? Pastor and author John Piper uh, summarizes the evidence for this text in this way. Uh, number one, he writes, the story is missing from all Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. So, you know, the closer you get to the time of Jesus, oftentimes those manuscripts carry more weight. As time goes on, they might carry a little less weight because you get further removed from the events. And Piper notes that, hey, th this, this passage that we read right here, when you, when you read those manuscripts, they're, they're, not, they're not showing up. And so that, that's a concern. Uh, secondly, he says, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from John chapter 7, verse 52, uh, to John chapter 8, verse 12. So the church fathers, I mean, they're, they're in this, and they, they don't really comment on it, right? And so it causes one to kind of scratch their head a little bit and go, oh, I don't know. If you were to remove this passage and go directly from John 7.52 to John 8, uh, verse 12, it actually sort of makes sense, and it flows together uh, nicely. Um, and, Piper writes, when the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of John's uh, gospel, it shows up in three different places. It shows up earlier in John chapter 7. It shows up in the beginning of John chapter 8. It shows up in two different places in Luke's gospel as well. And then lastly, uh, scholars argue that the language that, that, that is used in this passage is different from John's writing. So typically, if, if you're a writer, you, you craft uh, words or sayings or thoughts a certain way, and sometimes people read this and go, mm, I, it doesn't sound like maybe something that John would normally write. All right, so I, I've just told you that the passage we read uh, from John's gospel, that there's at least a chance, some would argue a good chance, that it, that it doesn't necessarily belong in John's gospel. So <laughs> that's an interesting way to start a sermon. Um, again, maybe you're going, where are you going uh, with this? Well, I share that not, not to uh, cast a seed of doubt in your hearts and whether or not you can trust the Bible. Um, I actually share that story with you to do just the opposite. Right? So one, Scripture like is pretty, pretty open and honest about the reality that this may or may not have been in John's gospel. Like, they note it. In other words, we're not, nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Right? We're just going, we've got questions with this passage. Um, also, when you, when you study the wealth of manuscripts that we have of the ancient scriptures, 
when, when you think to yourself, man, there's 25,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. When you consider the extent uh, that people uh, went to to preserve the ancient text, um, what that does, or what I think it should do, is build great confidence in our hearts um, that this is God's word, that it is true and trustworthy, uh, and we can trust it. Which uh, maybe leads us back to our original question, well, what, what, what are we going to do with the text? Like, are we going to go through it or not? And we're going to go through it, and we're going to go through it for a couple of reasons. One is because the same scholars that actually argue that this story might not be a part of John's gospel uh, actually argue that more than likely this story did take place. Uh, that it happened and that it was a story that was passed on from one generation to the next. It's not some whimsical made-up thing, some made-for-TV movie. People told and retold this story uh, through the ages. Um, Bruce Metzger says the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, there is little reason for doubting that the events here uh, described actually did occur. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the passage this morning. I want us to think together about what it teaches about God, about us as individuals, about us in terms of our community. And I want to pull some things for other places in Scripture if you're nervous about this passage that actually support what this passage is teaching. Does that, does that make sense? Because I'm not going to start from the beginning. Like, no more text criticism today. Um, okay, we're, we're good, I think. I hope we're good. So if you have your Bibles, turn in them to John chapter 7. Verse 53 reads, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. This is a scandal. Right? This is scandalous. A woman has been caught in the act of adultery. This isn't hearsay. It's not a rumor that people are spreading uh, down at the well. Um, th this, according to the story, happened. It's not a misunderstanding. Right? So she's not coming before Jesus and going, hey, I know this looked bad, but I have an explanation. Let me defend myself. No, like there's, there's no defending. So she's brought before uh, Jesus, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, um, they want Jesus to do something about this. They want him to address this situation. Um, it is significant that only the woman is brought before Jesus. As you well know, it takes two to tango, but here she stands alone. Uh, this leads us to believe that the scribes and the Pharisees aren't simply looking out uh, for the condition of her heart. They're not bringing her to Jesus because they want Jesus uh, to declare a word of forgiveness over her life. Uh, instead, they want to bring her before Jesus 
because they want to make an example of her. And really, primarily, uh, they want to catch Jesus. Because they don't like Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, they hate him. John chapter 8, verse 5, uh, reads, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they may have some uh, charge to bring against him. Right? So they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to find a scenario or situation where he doesn't have an appropriate answer because they want Jesus arrested. Ultimately, uh, they want Jesus killed. Right? So you can imagine the story. I mean, I, like <laughs> someone's dragged before Jesus and the religious leaders kind of share the, the gossip, what has taken place. You can imagine TMZ getting a hold of this story, right? This story, if there was video of it, it would get clicks. Um, this scene would go viral, right? So notice what uh, Jesus does next. They have set him up. Right? They bring her before Jesus, and they're essentially saying, Jesus, you know, you know what the law teaches? Do something. The scripture says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, on the ground. Now, we are not told what Jesus wrote. We're not told. Uh, we can use our creative imaginations, and we will, but truth be told, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Scripture uh, doesn't teach us. We can only imagine. We can only imagine, and, and I would imagine, and again, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that Jesus isn't just doodling. I would guess, and again, I don't, I don't know this for sure. I'm not going to die on this hill. But I don't, I don't think he's just playing in the sandbox here. I think it's significant that this is recorded in this story. And based on how the people respond, it it at least leads us uh, to, to toy with the idea or to imagine that he might be up to something with what he is writing. These religious leaders come to Jesus. They, they thirst for judgment. Uh, her, her sins have been exposed. Uh, she's been caught. Her misgivings, her regret, her sin is aired out uh, for uh, the world to see. And I wonder, again, this is just me, but I wonder if when Jesus bends down and begins uh, to write with his finger on the ground, if he isn't maybe writing a few of the scribes and the Pharisees' misgivings. I wonder, again, I don't know. I, I wonder if he's uh, writing down a struggle that they've had or something that they've experienced or a regret that they live with. Sin is pretty sinister. Oftentimes, we can go out of our way to hide it. We've been doing that since the beginning of time. We keep it pretty close to the vest. We don't advertise it. 
but the reality is all of us, all of us, if we are honest, uh, have or do uh, struggle with something. It could be a besetting sin. It could be uh, something that we said or that we did or that we thought uh, that nobody else knows about it. We all have stuff. And the Bible calls that stuff uh, sin. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. Our sin, again, uh, more often than not, uh, is not advertised. It's not splashed across the headlines. Uh, it stays in the confines of our own mind or heart or home. But what's interesting is oftentimes when we stumble across the sin of others, it can be a little too easy uh, to, to lift up our noses a bit and think to ourselves, well, well, well. Uh, look at what uh, he has done. Look at what she has done. Boy, they, sh they sure have made a mess of things, haven't they? I mean, <laughs> I'm certainly not happy about it, but I got to be honest with you, I kind of saw it coming. I mean, that's just me. Maybe when Jesus bends down and begins uh, to write uh, in uh, the ground, maybe he is exposing uh, the religious folks and reminding them of their own brokenness or their own sinfulness. Maybe he's reminding them of their own wandering eyes or their own half-heartedness or their own sense of pride. Again, we don't know for sure. But something seems to be happening here. It says in John chapter 8, verse 7, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to, to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. All right, so you see the picture. Uh, Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you uh, be the first to throw a stone at her. Whatever Jesus uh, wrote and whatever he said uh, certainly made an impact. It made an impact because people heard his words uh, and they, they began to set aside their stones. And one by one, they walked away. Now, it should come as no surprise to us, but this passage oftentimes is twisted by some to say something that it doesn't say and to mean something that it doesn't mean. The thought typically goes a little something like this. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to say what I want to say in you have no business telling me otherwise. I mean, who are you? How dare you throw stones at me? Are you perfect? I didn't think so. That is not the point of the passage. Oftentimes, we can be tempted to use this as a way of justifying our behavior and then criticizing anyone who challenges us. So if anyone sort of gets up in our grill 
about decisions we're making, we essentially say to them in so many words, hey, you stand down. You're not perfect either. But this isn't a call for no justice in the world. This isn't a ticket to do what I want to do, and no one is allowed to question me about it. This passage doesn't mean that there isn't a time and a place uh, for us to lovingly come alongside people that we have a relationship with and simply say to them or challenge them with the words, hey, that, man, that's not right. That, that's sin. Don't, like, don't, don't do that. Um, that's not what this passage is teaching us. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that the response of the scribes and the Pharisees show no grace and no humility and no compassion. And that mindset and mentality has no place in the Christian life. They had their own motives, and none of them were godly. And so Jesus is exposing their misuse of the law. Uh, They may follow the letter of the law, but they miss the point of the law. So Jesus calls out their pride and their arrogance. And apparently, at least in that moment, they get uh, the point. They didn't stick around for the show. Instead, they slowly walk away. The point here isn't that there is never a time for correction. The point is that righteousness and justice uh, should be grounded and founded in a gracious spirit. Uh, If it's not, what you'll get is pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Verse 10 reads, uh, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Uh, We can debate whether or not this uh, passage, this story belongs in John's gospel. We can banter back and forth about it. We can study it. We can turn it on its side. We can hold it up uh, to uh, the light. But there are a certain few abiding truths that we read here, and quite honestly, we read in other places in Scripture that are well worth a reminder this morning. I I said I wanted us to to be reminded of something that is true about God, and that is this, that Jesus uh, is God. Jesus is God. He has the power and the authority to declare one guilty or innocent. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that Jesus is God? Because who else has the power to say, I do not condemn you? This whole book, the Gospel of John, again, was written so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, uh, they may have life in his name. Right? This, this woman uh, needed uh, life in the name of Jesus. She, she needed uh, to experience life. And the very thing that she needed, uh, God in Christ provided for her. What is true about God is that Jesus is God. He is not a mere man. He is not a good teacher. He is not a philosopher. He is fully God and fully man. I said I wanted to point out something that this text teaches uh, that is true about you. And I'm talking about you as an individual. I'm not talking about us collectively. I'm talking about you as an individual. This is what I want you to know this morning, um, that in Christ, there is no condemnation. 
in Christ there is no condemnation. We read this in other places in God's Word, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, I don't know what you're wrestling through this morning. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know all the decisions that you've made in your life. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you did or what you said or what you thought 40 years ago or four years ago or four minutes ago. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I, I do know uh, that we, that all of us, uh, all suffer uh, from sin and brokenness in our hearts. There are no exceptions. Each and every person, if we were honest, could go around and say that we have regrets, we have experienced shame, we wish uh, that we could do things differently um, if we had another shot. Unfortunately and sadly, oftentimes those decisions that we made, the things that we did or thought or didn't do (laughs) that we should have done, mark us in such a profound and significant way that, that we wrongly believe that those define us. And they, they don't define us. I had a friend one time say, James, um, th- those decisions in life may become part of our story, but they don't define our story. In Christ, there is now, like right now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. That is good news. Um, Third, I said I wanted to share something that is true about us. Um, And this is what is true about all of us. This is true about us as we function and we live as the people of God. And it is this. Um, God's grace compels us to go and sin uh, no more. God's grace compels us uh, to go and to sin no more. Do you see what Jesus did in, in the passage? It's really fascinating to me. The crowd thins out until it is just Jesus and this woman. And he asked the woman, where did they all go? Who condemns you? And she said, uh, no one, Lord. And this is what Jesus doesn't say to the woman. Uh, he doesn't say, now get your act together. Do you realize what you've done? Do you understand the damage that you have caused? Can you even begin to understand the hurt and impact of your sin? You go to your room and you think about what you've done. And when you're ready, you can come out. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus extends grace that sets her free, and then he tells her to pursue holiness and go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't make light of sin. He doesn't say, well, we've all been there before. He doesn't say, boy, if you knew the stories that I knew, He doesn't make light of her sin, but he extends to her grace in the midst of it, and then he calls her to go and sin no more. All of us have experienced the consequences of our sin. Like all of us, we've experienced horizontal consequences. We've experienced uh, broken relationships before. Uh, We have 
experienced separation. We've experienced uh, maybe lack of freedom. We have experienced tarnished reputation. Like, the, like sin has consequences. It's not what Jesus is saying. He is, he is saying to this woman, and he says to us, the very thing that you need and are desperate for, namely grace, I'm going to give it to you. And in receiving that grace, go live in freedom. I would argue that the same grace that was extended to the woman in this story is extended to you and me every single day. Um, Jesus still extends grace to us and then calls us by the grace of God and by the power of His Spirit uh, to go into sin no more. And so may that be our call this morning. Uh, If you would, I want to encourage you to bow uh, your heads and close your eyes. And I want to invite you, I want to invite us um, just to spend some time with the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, this story uh, from God's Word, uh, boy, it, it lands heavy on you today. Maybe there are decisions that you've made or things that you've said or done or thought and you need to do business with God. You need to confess those before Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've felt the weight of your own sin, sin and, uh, and you've experienced shame and it feels incredibly weighty to you. And you need to hear uh, the words of Jesus when he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I don't know what God's Spirit is doing in your heart today, uh, but I just want to encourage you to spend some time uh, with the Lord now, and I'll pray for us in just a moment. God, I pray for your people this morning that by the power of your Spirit, uh, that you would uh, bring comfort uh, for those who need to be comforted. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would uh, convict uh, where We need conviction. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, the truth of uh, the gospel would take root in our hearts and that we would uh, know and feel and experience the beauty of uh, the gospel this morning. Lord, I pray uh, that the forgiveness that is offered in Christ would set us free, uh, that the truth that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we I would would know that and that we would feel that this morning. Uh, God, would you do a good work in us for your namesake? Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.